Hello and welcome to episode number 11 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Kareem Farah. I'm the co-founder and executive director of the Modern Classrooms Project. I'm joined by Zach Diamond, co-host. Zach, how are you? I'm doing great and I'm super excited to be here for this episode. I'm really fired up about this one. I'm really excited to talk about collaboration. Me too. And I'm especially excited because we have a special guest, Dan Bordeaux. Dan is an educator that has been teaching at the high school English level, ninth and 11th grade currently in DC International Charter School. I had the privilege of training Dan through the Modern Classrooms Project model, which is like a really generous way of saying that I got to watch her basically show me how incredible she was at teaching and then adopt some of our principles. Um, she's one of the best implementers I've ever witnessed in the classroom. Um, it's a privilege to have her join us today. Um, Dan, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your experience in education thus far and how it connects with the Modern Classrooms Project. Sure. Um, I am super excited to be here. I've been teaching for about 19 years, um, five years in K-12. And I am really excited about Modern Classroom. What I like about it is how much time it frees up for me uh, to work with students one-on-one and with collaboration, which is what we're talking about tonight. Fantastic. And Dan's one of those educators, by the way, to all the listeners. Like When Dan joined our program and she joined through our fellowship, um, she had already been doing most of the stuff that we were creating and thinking about, and we kind of just layered on top an extra structure. So it was amazing how quickly she knew how to execute the model. She understood it. She understood the importance of students that are teaching. And the reason why she's here today is I don't think I've ever seen a classroom that cultivated organic collaboration quite like Dan's, which feeds nicely into the topic for today. So last episode was sort of part one of this two-part series on collaboration. Part one was really about structured activities, planned collaboration, labs, paideia seminars, things that you really think about well in advance and structure into your pacing tracker and your kind of unit planning format. Today, we're going to really dig into organic collaboration. How do you get kids working with each other without necessarily structuring the time that way and or really aggressively prompting them to do that? So before we dig in, I kind of want to have a discussion about the distinction between these two types of collaboration. Frankly, I didn't even know the difference when I first started teaching. Um, But what do you all see as the difference between sort of structured and planned collaboration versus organic collaboration? Dan, why don't you start? Like, how do you see these two things as distinct? Or maybe you don't at all. Um, Well, actually, I think they're they're quite different, um, particularly from the planning perspective. So in the classroom, they look very similar, right? So structured peer review, small group discussions, reading circles, those things happen with the whole class. Those are um, collaborative situations or experiences that I consider to be more structured. And they're very meticulously planned into my lesson plans and my curriculum. Whereas organic um, collaboration, I feel, is much more spontaneous and it includes a lot of the things that are happening above, but it happens in the moment. And that's where, you know, some of the things like our trackers come into into play. Whereas if two kids are working on lesson five, they can collaborate on that lesson together um, in the moment. And it's not necessarily something that I have planned. It just happens, which is what makes it feel unplanned. But all of the tools and structures that students need to follow through with that spontaneously are already there and put into place. Yeah, love it. And Zach, how would you describe the difference? What would you add there? 
Yeah, I mean, I think Dan just read my mind and stole my answer. But um, these, this, uh, or I guess organic collaboration in the classroom, it does take planning. It, I wouldn't call it like a totally unplanned kind of activity, but I think that it's different in the sense that um, it happens more spontaneously. Uh, the words that I keep landing on are it's a culture of collaboration where a student isn't necessarily being told to collaborate, but feels like they can get up and walk over to another student and ask them for help or ask them to give some feedback on something they're working on. It's it's more spontaneous. And I really appreciate that you used that word because it hadn't occurred to me and it perfectly describes the way that I think of this this kind of collaboration. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, for a lot of classrooms, this is the collaboration that fills up most of the space, right? I mean, it's hard to create plan collaboration activities all day, every day, every lesson. Um, so when you can build that culture of collaboration where kids are just organically looking at each other and saying, hey, I think I should work with this person because I need help or we're on the same spot. Um, that is a type of collaboration that is sustained and, as everyone said, doesn't require prompting, um, which I think is critical. And I think it's critical to have both. There's not one that's better than the other. You shouldn't just do one versus the other. But having both come to life in the classroom has always been fantastic in my perspective. Um, so in, in thinking about organic collaboration, like what it, what's different about how it feels in the classroom? Because as you said, Dan, it doesn't necessarily always look different. Like I can just walk into a classroom and have no idea if kids are collaborating, whether it was planned or unplanned. So what does feel different about the two? I think that it's the fact that it's student driven, right? So like the the planning that I put into organic collaboration doesn't feel like planning because it's something as simple as having whiteboards that are accessible to kids that they can just go pick up and use as they're maybe going through a lesson together or having, um, I do flexible seating. I started doing flexible seating um, about five years ago. And so having flexible spaces where they can kind of huddle together and watch a video at the same time using, um, you know, uh, headphone splitters. So it's, it's all about having those things accessible to them. And so it doesn't feel like our typical kind of planning. Yeah, I 100% agree. Zach, how would you say it feels different? I think that it feels different in that when you look around, at least the way that I feel in my classroom, you look around the room and every kid sort of becomes a, a resource for you as a student, right? Like I think that students look around the classroom that way as well. And I think a lot of it hinges on the pacing tracker because kids in my class will, they'll, you know, by the end of the year, when we've been through these routines a lot, they won't even ask me for help. Sometimes they'll look at the pacing tracker and see, oh, you know, Siomara has already finished lesson five and I'm on lesson four. So maybe I can ask her, right? So they look at each other differently and it feels like, it feels more like a community, um, in which you can go up to somebody and ask for help, or you can ask for feedback, and that's that's the collaboration specifically that those types of collaboration that I'm that I'm after when I'm thinking about this kind of organic culture of collaboration. Yeah, and you know, one thing I think that I always noticed about the distinction was kind of building on that the idea that it's spontaneous is it ebbs and flows. So you can go into a classroom, and if organic collaboration is what's going on, it might only be ten percent of the kids that are collaborating at the moment, but then five minutes later, it might be 90% of the kids. And then it might be completely silent because kids are just choosing to independently work. Whereas I think when I walk into an, a planned collaboration activity, like everyone's either collaborating or waiting for instructions. And I think that nature of it is quite different in the way that it feels. You know, it's not something that 
you know, if I'm an observer, for example, or, you know, like a principal, I walk into a room that's engaging in organic collaboration, you shouldn't expect it to necessarily be happening all the time. And what's most special about it is that it's unprompted. Like, you're watching a kid choosing to go work with another kid, not because you told them to, but because they actually see value in working with each other, which I think is super, super cool. Um, now, both of you have said, and I certainly agree with this, it's not actually that it's unplanned. All right, it's almost like a misnomer in this case. So what does it take to build a culture of organic collaboration? Um, how do you get to that point? What types of planning do you engage in to make sure that that comes to life in your classrooms? For me, it's all about the space. Um, it it really is. I And I, I know that we're talking about collaboration, but for me, it, it's, I feel like when I was doing flexible seating before I was doing modern classroom. And then once I added modern classroom to the mix, it was like I was able, I had perfected my recipe, right? And so in creating that flexible space and in having various resources available to students where they know where they are, they can go and get them, they can use them appropriately. Some of that really kind of, you know, absolutely translates into the resources that I have within the classroom. So I mentioned having mini whiteboards. I mentioned, you know, having headphone adapters. I also have a lot of printed materials for students. You know, in addition to uh, their note catchers, as an English teacher, I also have to have things like sentence stems and graphic organizers. And so what's really beautiful is when you see two kids who are perhaps working on a writing assignment and they're going through a peer review and they get up and they go and they get the materials that they need in order to fulfill that task. Um, it's almost like if you're really, really adept at implementing the model, at putting the collaborative resources where they need them and setting up those systems and routines, the classroom can run itself. Um, it's almost like I feel I'm not quite needed within this space because I've set things up in such a way that the kids are able to, as Zach said earlier, have a community and they know what the community, um, you know, how it's set up, what the expectations are and how to kind of move throughout it. And it, it really is a nice thing. They they gain collaboration with each other, but also autonomy and independence, uh, which is critical, I think, to education these days. Yeah, and I want to build like that that idea of building the space. I mean, both with seating, but also accessibility. I remember walking into your classroom and asking you one of the first times I was in there because I kept seeing kids get up and grab things. And it wasn't just grabbing their guided notes and their assignments to watch an instructional video. They were grabbing tools. And I thought that was so fascinating. So I think that idea of accessibility is really important. For something to happen organically, there can't be barriers to entry. Like, there can't be like, I need to go ask the teacher to give me this so that I can then collaborate with my peer. They need to have all the tools available and know where they are. So I think that's a really, really important point. Zach, what about you? What are the things you kind of plan in advance when you think about creating a classroom that it really has organic collaboration come to life? Yeah, I agree with everything Dan said, although I'm not nearly as good at setting up my space as you are. We work at the same school and I've seen your classroom. It's got like couches and rugs and standing desks and stuff. And that's awesome. Um, I, I'm more focused on, you know, beyond the actual physical space, more like setting up the emotional space. And I guess like the interactions with students, you know that, Karim, you know that my thing is relationships. That's like my, my main thing in the classroom. And so I think, you know, planning, when teachers use the word planning, we tend, I personally tend to think of a very specific um, type of planning, you know, curriculum, materials, development, that kind of stuff. Um, that's not what I think about when I, when I read this question. I think more about like, what, are, what is my plan to set up an environment in which kids will do this, right? What makes that environment? 
and it can come down to the space and the way that it's arranged. I use tables instead of desks, for example, like, you know, that's an easy one. But I also think about the interactions that I'll have with kids, um, particularly at the beginning of the year. And I mentioned this before, and so did Dan. It really hinges on the pacing tracker at the beginning because at the beginning of the year, you know, kids will come to me with a question and I'll say, well, look at the pacing tracker and see if you can find another student who's already finished uh, that lesson and ask them for help. And then after like three or four weeks of me sending them away <laughs> to find some other kid to help, they don't come to me anymore. And that that one is very explicit. But I also like, since we're sitting at tables, I'll rope in another kid into a discussion that we're having because they might have a different perspective or they might have already finished that lesson or they might be on the same lesson. And it's those interactions that I intentionally plan for. And the kids might not realize it, but I'm very consciously thinking about who can I pull into this discussion? Who's on the same thing? Who's ahead? Who's behind? And how can we make this a collaborative interaction and rather than just me giving the kid the answer or even helping them to find the answer just between the two of us? Um, and that's the mindset that I bring into the classroom, I think. You know, for me, because this was huge for me, I actually very, I, I would say like 98% of the collaboration that was happening in my class was organic collaboration. And one of the things I always did was really think about how, what kind of ideas and concepts I could reinforce daily and constantly. Because this wasn't something that was just going to be built on the first day of school. It had to be reinforced consistently. Mm -hmm. And students had to believe that it was a living, breathing part of my classroom. So one of the things that I made it a point of with my students that I would constantly reinforce was this idea that I'm not the first person you should ask when you have a question. It was just a very simple concept that I thought was pretty rational, which is don't come to me first. See if there's someone else in the room who can help you. And that's obviously not like a 100% foolproof, but I tried to make that like a real concept. So when someone would come to ask me a question, the first thing I'd ask them is, who else have you asked? And if they couldn't articulate the answer to that, I would say, hey, I'm not the first person you're going to for this. And one of the things I tried to explain this um, was this idea of a workplace. I would always say, I'm a teacher. If I have a question, I don't go to my principal first. I actually go to my colleagues first. Now, if I go to a variety of my colleagues and ask them a question and I haven't arrived at the answer, then that is now an important enough or challenging enough question that I then elevate to my principal. And really trying to ground the rationale for this in the idea that it is how the world actually works outside of the confines of my room and then being really repetitive. So every single time a student tried to do that, every single time calling that out and being really committed to it. I think made my students realize over time, this isn't an option in here. Like I actually have to rely on my peers when I'm stuck. And ultimately they realize that's actually a more effective approach. Um, so, you know, that's one of the big ones that I constantly used in my classroom. Uh, now I want to dig in a little bit to the pacing trackers. You touched on this briefly, um, Zach, but I want to also hear about this, Dan, in your class because you use the public pacing tracker quite beautifully. Can you tell me a little bit, Dan, about how the self-pacing just idea in general, and then that as well as the pacing trackers really helped you create a classroom that cultivated organic collaboration? Well, self-pacing, you know, I'm, I'm sure most of our teachers who are listening know is giving students the opportunity to work at their own pace. And so what the pacing tracker does is um, I think different teachers have different ways in which they display it, but I project it onto the whiteboard 
Um, and it'll say what lesson each student is on. It'll also say for them what the expectations are. So it'll say something like, you know, we're on Wednesday, you should be roughly on lessons four, five, or six. And if you're not within that area, then you're a little bit behind. Um, one of the things I also try to do with my tracker is because it's public, um, and this is something that, uh, that kind of came to me when I first started teaching, um, with one of my mentors a long time ago. And, you know, she said, kids react to the color red. Um, and so as an English teacher, when I would give feedback to students, I would never use red ink. Um, I would always use, you know, something blue or purple or, you know, something a little bit more calming, um, because they don't like the idea of, of you bleeding on the page, so to speak. And I kind of took the same perspective, uh, with my, with my trackers because it's public and because some students do kind of react to the color red. Um, I was very intentional and I know it sounds like a small thing, but very, very intentional in the way that I used color to indicate whether or not a student was behind, um, on track or ahead. Um, and it's, what's really nice about it. And, and Zach also mentioned this is that they can look at it to see, oh, well, so-and-so is on lesson five. I'm on lesson four, perhaps they can help and assist me. And so that that's one of the ways that the tracker really encourages and motivates students to collaborate with each other. A hundred percent. I mean, that's arguably the biggest impact of those public facing trackers is the capacity to facilitate organic collaboration. Zach, do you want to share any thoughts since I know you're a huge fan of using that in that way? I don't know what else to add, honestly. <laughs> Everything that everyone has said tonight, I feel like hinges in my own classroom. It would hinge on the pacing tracker. The pacing tracker just gives you so much data and it gives the kids the same data. And it shows you, I mean, everything about the pacing tracker is really great in my classroom. The kids like it and I like it. But the collaboration piece is that it shows you who you can go to for help. And, you know, I will sometimes... Because my, my pacing tracker is, is just a spreadsheet with the colors and everything to show what's on pace, what's behind, what's ahead. Um, and the kids have, you know, they have a check in the column for the lessons they finish. And so I can rearrange the, the spreadsheet to group them by lesson. And I'll do that sometimes too. Um, I guess that's sort of a pseudo planned activity where one day I'll have them come into class and they'll all be suddenly grouped into groups based on lessons. And, you know, that all of that gets them thinking like, okay, this, this document, this pacing tracker is giving me information that I can use when I need help. And that's the kind of authentic need that they, that they have in their, in their mind, right? I need to find someone to help me. And the pacing tracker gives them that. And that's why I, I, I really feel like the pacing tracker is central to the collaboration that happens in my classroom. Yeah, and there's actually two strategies I want to bring up that I think can also help with leveraging this effectively. And the first one I want to bring up is this idea of lesson superstars or highlighting the, the folks that are, have performed the best thus far on a lesson or have done exemplary work. It doesn't even need to be the students who've done the best because you really want to distribute that opportunity. But that even works if you don't feel comfortable using a public pacing tracker. If you just put on the board somewhere, like lesson number one, all-star, Jessica, lesson number two, all-star, Antoine, lesson number three, all-star, Tom and you know Monique, then the kids actually know Oh, those are the folks that have led the way on those lessons. So when I'm stuck, I can go to them if I need help on those lessons. It actually creates even more of a scaffold for that organic collaboration. And that's an example of how you can kind of think through planning on the front end for that. And then Zach, I think you teased out one of these, but I've seen a lot of educators use group pacing trackers. 
So you walk into class and the kids are organized, either heterogeneously or homogeneously based off of lesson and even can indicate a table they should be sitting at or a breakout room if you're in the remote space. So that really creates a structure too that says, because you're on this lesson, these are the people you should be working with and still leveraging some sort of public pacing or public indicator. And really the lesson superstar one is not contingent on whether or not every student's name is displayed. Another thing that I'll do in that in that type of activity is that the kids who are, who when I've grouped them on the tracker, the kids who are farthest ahead, I won't group them together. I'll pick one of them and put one of them in each other group yeah. to help, mm-hmm. you know, like the, this, the tracker gives you so much data. I, I can't stop saying it, but it's just like these kids can help these kids. These kids need help from these kids. It's just very useful data. Exactly. Now, the next question I want to talk about, and I specifically, Dan, am excited to hear your answer is what about the kids that are resistant? And the reason why I want to hear your answer is because I remember walking to your class and I was, couldn't believe it because it was just so peaceful and calm in there and everyone was engaged. Um, and I was so startled that I was like, I'm gonna go back in there next time. And there better be some kids disengaged. Otherwise, I'm starting to wonder if there's some like fairy dust in here that's making these kids always work. And it never changed. Kareem, I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she does it. <laughs> it's it was it's always mind boggling to me. But more importantly, every kid was engaging to some degree in that organic collaboration. It's not like I was seeing, you know, two or three kids choosing not to participate in that aspect of the classroom environment. So can you talk a little bit about how you do that? Like, how do you get the kid that explicitly states, like, I don't like working with other people, or I want to do this independently? Like, how do you inspire that organic collaboration, even in the students that don't really believe it's valuable or want to do it? Well, I mean, I think you were right, Kareem. It's fairy dust um, <laughs> with, a, with a healthy dose of fear. Um, <laughs> Love it. Um, a few different things. I, I think, and Zach mentioned this earlier, right? So a lot of what we do is so contingent on uh, building relationships. And so typically what I'll do is if I have um, a student or two who is resistant, the first, um, my first approach is to be their best friend. Um, so it's like, well, fine. You don't want to work with anybody else. You're going to work with me and I'm going to sit right here, right next to you. And we're going to do this together. And, then, and you know, some kids really like that. And then, then they, it will backfire and they're like, all right, Miss B, you're, you're my person. Um, and then I have to kind of, and in, in those situations, what I do is I've created enough safety and comfort that they're willing to trust me to try to do something that they don't like to do. Ultimately, that that's what it is. It's you build a relationship with the student, you become their person, they trust you. And then it's like, okay, look, we've been doing this together for X number of class periods. You've done this many lessons with me. Maybe you might want to go work with Jeremiah now. And, you know, we can give that a shot. And I, I really, really sincerely believe that it has to do with making them feel comfortable. And I, I think that for me, that starts first and foremost with the space. And, you know, it's very, I'm sure, Kareem, you remember, very low lighting, um, always some music playing in the background. Um, the type of music was often geared toward the type of work that I wanted them to be doing. I also would put in plugins, you know, some aromatherapy. I mean, everything kind of geared toward making them feel comfortable in regards to the space. And then if they still weren't where I needed them to be in regards to being comfortable and trusting then I would just build a relationship with them um, until they felt like they could, you know, trust me or trust their peers enough to put their self, themselves out there. I mean, 
I'm an English teacher. Reading and writing is difficult, um, no matter how old you are, no matter how learned you might be. And so I also tend to uh, try to communicate to them a certain level of vulnerability within myself um, so that they recognize that not only is it a space where they are expected to be risk takers, but it's a space where I'm going to be a risk taker and be vulnerable too. I love that. And you know what I think part of the reason why I love that so much is it speaks to this idea that there actually isn't like an easy answer to this. It's not like someone's doing something magical, you know, over here and everyone is just collaborating and it's just like this one strategy you pull out of the pocket. At its core, like kids need to believe that collaboration is powerful and useful and you need to convince them of that. And part of that is actually building the relationships first and then articulating to them why it's impactful. So, you know, it's not anything magic. It's just setting up the circumstances and creating the conditions where people feel comfortable and then building the relationships so that they trust you enough, which I love. Zach, any thoughts on this? Like, how do you get a student who just won't initially feel like they want to collaborate? Like, what do you do to support them and get them to that point? Yeah. So a couple things. I think I mentioned before at a table, if a kid, if I'm helping a kid, I can, you know, kind of rope in someone else to the discussion. And I think that when students feel comfortable talking to me, like I can sort of be an intermediary uh, for collaboration between students with a kid who's resistant to collaboration at the outset. And so... Uh, if I know a particular kid is going to is gonna struggle with collaboration, I might sit with them at their table. And then when they ask me a question, I might say to the other kid sitting opposite me, wait, can I see your project real quick? Because I want to see how they compare. And again, like the students might not realize that that was very intentional on my part. But, you know, me sort of mediating that collaboration between them, I think makes them feel a little bit more comfortable because they wanted to come to me in the first place. I actually have found that one really powerful way to do this is to capitalize on the students you know are willing to collaborate. Hmm. So like if a student asks a question to you who generally doesn't want to collaborate, instead of you answering the question, you actually call over a student who you know can help yeah. and say, hey, come over here. Can you help this student out over here on this? So you've actually just put that student in a position to say, you're actually stuck here. You're going to collaborate with this person because I'm not going to answer that question. I facilitate it. Of course, I can say, no, I'm good. I don't need help. But usually that opens the student's eyes a little bit um, to you know the fact that there is a community here of people who will be willing to help you. Yeah. I, another Another thing I wanted to say about students who are resistant to collaboration is that this is an opportunity to leverage those types of activities that they talked about in the episode last week, like those full group planned out activities. Um, when you put students in a more teacher-driven collaboration uh, mode, right, and they can learn those skills more sort of explicitly. Yeah, uh, I, I do that in my class with critiques. I teach music, and so we're making songs, and you know, it's I do project-based learning, and one of the design elements of the project-based learning thing is a public product. So we share drafts and we share final versions. And when my kids share their songs with each other, they they enjoy listening to them. And they they say, oh, I like how you did this. And I want to try that on my project next time. And then what happens is as we do that throughout the year, they start going over to each other to hear their songs before the critiques um, and giving each other feedback just because they've they've sort of learned the pattern of this is how we share and this is how we critique and this is how we give each other feedback. Right. And Dan, don't you do a lot of those? I mean, I remember seeing in your class that a lot of that was happening. And this maybe crosses the line, um, you know, the gray area of like what is planned versus organic collaboration. But correct me if I'm wrong, a lot of times like you would set the conditions and basically be like, 
uh, you need to find someone who's going to peer review your piece, um, or you know, you need to find someone who's willing to you know edit your paper or something like that. Did I make that up, or is that something that you engage in <laughs> frequently in your classroom? Oh yeah, no, they yeah, that absolutely was set up to happen organically, and I really resent the fact that I have to drive peer review now that we are um, that we're teaching virtually, and so it's it's a lot more difficult to have those things happen organically because we're in a virtual space. Yep. Um, but when we were in the classroom, absolutely there were, and again, it's like I had, you remember my backboard back when I had a classroom, <laughs> there were all these beautiful little bins and everything was labeled and it was, you know, this was for peer review and this was for outlining and then something else, you know, there were sentence stems for analysis, sentence stems for narratives. And so every single piece of paper that they could have needed in any way um, in order to follow through with those peer review exercises was available to them. And, and I think in an English classroom, particularly when we're writing, peer review is one of the most important collaborative tools that we have. Right. And, you know, that actually speaks to one of the things I think we haven't even addressed fully yet, which is the best way to get kids to organically collaborate is to make them believe that collaboration is actually powerful for them. And I think that that's a piece that often gets lost sometimes in planned collaboration. Mm -hmm. Not that it isn't part of the intention, but if every type of collaboration a kid engages in is planned, they start to think that it's sort of like something that happens to them. Like, I have to collaborate when my teacher tells me to. But ultimately, collaboration is useful because it actually helps you. And I think that reinforcing that concept is key. Yeah, I think it's it's have to versus want. Um, and if you give them an element of choice, even if that choice doesn't really exist, but it seems like it's there, if they feel like they're choosing something, then they're much more willing um, to partake in the activity. And then also one of the things that we can always get kids with in regards to peer review, it's like, look, this person who's reading your essay, who you're collaborating with right now, they're helping you make your grade better. Right. And you're helping them make their grade better. That's right. That's right. You know, one of the ways I did this, and it was actually such a fun exercise, and I encourage anyone listening to try it one day. So I had one class, and we all know this. Zach, I know I've spoken to you about this. Dan, I'm sure you've had this, where you have that like class where every single kid like just wants to ask you every question. They don't want to <laughs> mm -hmm. actually ask each other questions. And I was stuck. I was like, they're getting, they started to get mad at me. They were like, I don't want to collaborate. Like it, it was like, it's feeling like I wasn't their teacher because I wasn't answering questions. So one day I walked in there and I said, I'm not speaking for 30 minutes. And then I just said, that's what's going to happen. And all I'm going to do is take notes on how you all handle it. And I just stopped talking for 30 minutes straight. And it was so interesting to see. And what I realized after that exercise is the first five or 10 minutes, they were mad. They were furious. They were just like looking down. It was almost like they wouldn't even help each other or work together out of spite. And then after 10 minutes passed, they were like, all right, like we should probably do some work. And then they started to realize themselves that they could actually ask their peers, like that there were people in the room that could be helpful. And I think one of those ideas at its core is kids need to believe that they actually can get better by working with their peers. That has to be instilled. If they don't believe that's true, they're never going to willingly organically collaborate. And ultimately, it sounds like both you, Dan, with sort of peer reviews, that's quite obvious um, and how that can benefit you know, students. And same thing with you, Zach, with the peer sort of song reviews, which I've seen in action a whole bunch, which is super cool. Um, now, I want to talk briefly about sort of 
group work, um, which again, I think is this gray area between like what's planned and what's not planned. Um, but Dan and Zach, do either of you actually have like group work? And is it through multiple self-paced lessons? And how do you navigate that? Like, how do you create an environment where kids are collectively working as a group through a series of lessons? And what happens when some kids, you know, move faster than others? I do. I do have, um, actually, all of my projects are group projects. And the kids work either alone or in groups of two or three. I was really struggling with this because I've always done group projects. And I didn't, I really, when I transitioned to modern classrooms, I didn't want to stop doing group projects. That seems strange. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't come up with a solution to, to deal with that where students, like some students are working ahead, others are behind because it makes it really easy to basically copy, uh, the, the one kid in your group who's done all the work. And I, I asked Shane, actually, Shane has been a guest on the podcast and also works at DCI with us. Um, and he had a great idea, which was to basically come up with like a, not a, not a quiz, but a mastery check based on a project of mine. So the kids are working on their project, but I have like an example mastery check of my own project at every step of the way. So I could give a kid, you know, if some student had worked like three lessons ahead of the group. Um, and I needed to get the mastery check from a kid who was two lessons behind or three lessons behind. And I didn't just want them to screenshot the other kid's work. I would give them my example and they would have to mark it up and show me that they understood the stuff. And if they couldn't do that, they'd have to go back and watch the video, which I thought was a really good idea. Um, and I started, I started doing it and it was in fact a good idea that I got from Shane. You know, the, the mastery check isn't the project in my class. And so they can show me that they've learned something or that they haven't learned something um, on on any project. And, you know, otherwise, at the end of the project, if some some students haven't reached the end, they'll get a lower grade. Um, and I can I can see what they know. And so I, I feel like I can give them that grade in a way that's justified. But yeah, it is it is a challenge managing group work in a in a self-paced class because kids get they learn at different paces. And so it's a it's a it's a challenge. Right. And that's the distinction between group work versus collaborative work. Like they can be collaborating all the time organically or in planned settings. But then there's a different frontier, which is like I'm tackling something as a group and it's totally doable and possible. It just requires a little bit more detailed planning. Dan, do you ever do like full group work, like an entire unit or half a unit where kids are collaborating the whole way through? No. (laughs) Did you do it pre-self-pacing or is that just not something that was really ever a part of the way you executed your work? That's just, yeah, that's just, I don't know if it's an English teacher thing or if it's a me thing, but I, I, I really just don't, I I don't like to group them together for more than a couple of class periods. And, you know, so I, I do tend to group kids um, based on where they are within the curriculum. And I do change up the groups every few projects or assignments. Um, and sometimes I'll pair kids based on what I want them to accomplish. So for example, if, if I'm just giving them, um, you know, say an excerpt or a poem or a passage that I want them to annotate for the mini lesson for that day, and I'm, I'm putting groups together, well, you know, I'm going to most likely pair groups in regards to pacing to get through that activity so that everyone feels like they have an equal voice and that they all have the same access to the material. But if we're doing something like an exploratory assignment, like say a research day, as we're kicking off a new unit, well, in that case, I might take some of my high flyers and sprinkle them throughout um, so that they can kind of work as leaders um, throughout that, you know, that those one or two class periods where they're working on that research assignment. 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. No, I don't think I, I mean, I did group work every now and then. And the way I would structure it is I would have some things that every kid had to do regardless of the group they were in and then an overall group goal. Um, and then kind of, you know, tried to parse out what things actually had to happen together versus independently. Cause I thought that was important because I would worry sometimes with group work, just especially since I taught an environment with a high level of absenteeism, it was just really hard to create an environment where kids were going to rely on their peers who couldn't come in for sometimes reasons totally out of their control. You know, another another thing that I want to say about group work is that I have sort of, I've always done group work and I've always struggled with it. And I think that last year, starting with Modern Classrooms, I I wound up in a in a place where I could finally sort of accept that it is challenging and there's just no perfect way to go about it. And I've also used that uh, to sort of teach that to the kids, right? If something weird is happening in a group and, you know, one group member is pulling ahead and two are falling behind or one is falling behind or two are on pace, I will talk with the group and see if we can figure out what's going on. And it's kind of a teaching moment um, in terms of collaboration and also just in terms of social group dynamics. I mean, my, my students are younger um, than yours. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, I mean, we're using a very narrow, narrow definition of group work because group work if you're working in a group for a day or for 20 minutes, that's group work. We're really talking about, are you traveling through an entire unit as a group? Yeah, my students are doing group work for like six-week units. Exactly. And that's a different type of group work that I'm not sure is all that frequent in classrooms, but is a really interesting approach that I've seen happen and can be done. just requires more detailed planning and really being clear with students, like what's your responsibility versus the responsibility of the group. Right. Um, before we jump off today, we got to talk about the moment, obviously. We are in a remote space for a lot of teachers. Both of you are teaching remotely. Um, can you all just talk about what you all have been able to pull off with regards to sort of any level of organic collaboration during this time? And then what are the parts that just don't feel like you're capable of doing and just kind of have to, um, you know, work through the moment and get past it because it's just more work than you'll ever be able to see a payoff from. Um, so Dan, why don't you start just like what elements of organic collaboration have you been able to facilitate remotely and what things haven't been able to happen? Well, so organic moments, I mean, they've clearly been a, a lot more difficult. Um, but one of the, the strategies that I've found um, teaching virtually that has been really that turned into a collaborative moment that I didn't intend it to be. It literally just happened organically um, was doing uh, like a shared document. So for example, I would, um, I just taught um, political cartoons by Eric J. Garcia to my 11th graders. And um, what they had to do was read and annotate each image. And so what I would do is within one Google doc, put a single pic, the single picture, and then group the kids beneath the picture. And then I would call on each group, um, really just as a means to uh, spur on classroom discussion, which is another challenge teaching via Zoom. And what started to happen really quite organically and spontaneously was they started to rely on each other in the, the thinking time that I was giving them to read and annotate those images. Um, I think that that has probably been my most successful uh, organic moment. And like other things we've been trying are uh, Parlay and Padlets. But I think those shared documents have been working really great for us. It's amazing how simple that concept is, but how profoundly powerful it can be. And I think it requires a certain level of just explicit teaching. Um, but, you know, even just telling a kid like you four need to write your your responses to this topic on this document and then make a comment on each other's. I mean, in, in like classic blog form, but using the, using 
whether it's Google Slides or Microsoft Teams, whatever tool it is to have shared documents and that be the primary leverage point of collaboration, I found is a consistent method educators are succeeding in the remote space because you can also be pretty data-driven about it. Mm -hmm. You can be like, no, you haven't commented on anyone's post or you haven't had any responses yet. Um, And it's a really powerful way to hold kids accountable. So there's a little bit more planning involved, but really powerful. And it's not all that difficult to set up, obviously. It's the power of technology these days. But I have seen that come to life really well in teachers' classrooms. I think it's a really powerful one. Um, Zach, what about you? Organic collaboration in the remote space. What have you been able to pull off? Well, I think one that I've mentioned before is um, the breakout rooms. And I put, I specifically use breakout. I, so a lot of my students push back on breakout rooms. They don't like breakout rooms because they're they're telling me that teachers put them into breakout rooms and they just feel like they don't know what to do if there's not like a natural leader there. And so we've been talking about a lot of things that tonight that remind me of the idea of authenticity and like the feeling that you're actually doing something and not being just told to do it. And so I try and put students in breakout rooms when I can very clearly articulate to them why I'm doing it. And I feel like a good reason to put them in breakout rooms is because they are a group. Um, and then there's a feature in Zoom where they can kind of raise their hand from their breakout room. They, they send me a notification. And so I don't force them to. I ask, you know, after I'm done with the sort of announcements for the class, I say, okay, so which groups want me to make a breakout room for them and which want to stay in the main room or who wants to sign off of Zoom and just chat with me for the class period? And a lot of students do take me up on that. They go into their breakout room and then every now and then I'll get like a notification that says, you know, Anna in room three wants your help. And so I'll, if I'm not doing something, I'll drop into room three and see what she wants and her partner. And that's, that's been working really well. Um, and they don't push back on the breakout rooms because they see, I think it's very clear and it feels authentic. Like this is a good use of breakout rooms because we are a group. Um, and another one that did also just come about totally organically is that I, I have a, I teach sixth graders and some sixth graders can be particularly needy. And I have one group that would just keep me on Zoom, like pepper me with questions for the entire 45 minute period, which was exhausting for me. I'm not going to lie. But, you know, it was interesting because I would start like a student would ask me a question and I would then screen share on their project, which I can obviously access. And other kids would start asking me questions about the other group's project, like as I was doing it, you know, like I'd be talking to one particular kid in a group of 10 people and another kid in a different group would be like, wait, why are you doing that? And so I started basically giving the kids the option to just stay on Zoom with me and work silently. Mm. And, you know, if a kid has a question, I'll say, do you mind if I share your project with the whole group and everyone will just look on or not if they don't want to? Um, And that's, you know, it's sort of teacher driven in a sense because I'm kind of the one responding to the question. But I really like it when other kids see what I'm doing with regards to one kid's project and ask me questions about it that are relevant to their project. I feel like it it drives home that point that like other kids that are doing stuff can be beneficial to what you're doing. Yeah. And at its core, when you're in those live sessions, you don't always need to be doing something as a group. Yeah, Kids can just be working and you treat it like an office hour is available and support. And that can be a nice way to facilitate organic collaboration. Well, not to my surprise, certainly it's been wonderful to have this discussion. I think collaboration is always a joy to discuss. And it's even cooler when Dan Bordeaux is on the call, one of the most experienced educators I've gotten to work with and the best, one of the best implementers I've ever seen. Dan, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute joy. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. And as everyone knows, you can always access our content on www.modernclassrooms.org. We're going to have another episode of the podcast next week. 
Remember that you can always access our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. If you're interested in getting more support through our mentorship program, we're always available for that. That can be seen on our website as well. And then last but not least, I just want to plug this one. Um, We do have our engaged user survey out. If you just go to the website at the top bar, you will see it. We'll also make sure it's in the show notes. The engaged user survey is just a way for us as an organization to hear from you all. Um, What are the things that you found useful about the things that we've created? What do you want more of? And do you want to potentially be on a waiting list to become a mentee one day and join our mentorship program? So please, please, please check that out. Take it. And there's also going to be an announcement at the end where we're giving away iPads and free subscriptions to our virtual mentorship program, as well as swag. So it's a 10-minute survey. If you haven't taken it already, please do so. It's accessible on our website. It'll be in the show notes. Other than that, I hope everyone is having an okay end of their week. And uh, we'll talk next week. Bye, everyone.